Uh, as we begin talk one, let me pray for us. We're going to need some help from God. So let me ask him for some help. Loving Father, you are light. And in your light, we see light. Please shine brightly by your spirit in our hearts so that we may see clearly today. Amen. It can be hard to make decisions sometimes, can't it? What do you think is history's worst ever decision? The worst ever. I've got a few contenders. Well, I reckon it could be Christmas 1859, made by Thomas Austin. I think it could have been... Thomas Austin, he lived near Geelong and he thought he'd celebrate Christmas 1859 with a rabbit hunt. So he got his mate, he got his brother actually to send 24 rabbits from England. 24 rabbits from England. Uh, quoting historian Stephen Weir, they bred. <laughs> Seven years later, on his property alone, Thomas Austin shot and killed over 14,000 rabbits. <laughs> the rat, they stripped his property bare. He had to abandon it. 80 years later, there were an estimated 800 million rabbits in Australia, costing the country $800 million in damage. All for one weekend of hunting. Is that history's worst ever decision? <laughs> it's such a small decision, isn't it? But it's so consequential. No wonder we want guidance. Uh, maybe history's worst ever decision was made by Richard Rowe, who in 1962 decided not to sign the Beatles. Bit of a bummer. Or how many publishing houses did not sign up to uh, publish Harry Potter? Such small decisions, but so consequential. No wonder we want someone to give us guidance. Maybe history's worst ever decision was made by Napoleon Bonaparte when he decided to invade Russia. He wanted a quick victory, but his supply lines became too stretched. His army was decimated and he lost a major war. Or maybe history's worst ever decision was made by Hitler when he decided to invade Russia. He wanted a quick victory, his supply lines became stretched, his army was decimated and he lost a major war. Th those decisions, well, they were consequential, weren't they? They cost millions of lives. No wonder we want guidance. When you've got a big decision to make, don't you want advice? Don't you want someone to tell you what to do? Don't you want God to tell you the right thing to do? We want, we need guidance. This is why we turn to God for guidance, I think. Our, our decisions are hard because we don't know the future. But God does. So we turn to him for guidance. Our decisions are hard because we can't know all the facts. But God does. So we turn to him for guidance. Our decisions are hard because we're stupid. But God's not stupid, so we turn to him for guidance. How many times have you asked God for guidance? How many times have you asked God for wisdom? Every time you say the Lord's Prayer, you ask him for guidance. Your will be done. I want to get me some divine guidance, don't you? You've got a big decision to make in the next few years. What major to do, what, where to work, where to live, where to go to church, who to marry, who not to marry. I want to get me some divine guidance, don't you? Yes, Lord, give me guidance. But here's the key question that we are starting MYC with. The key question is, why do you want guidance? What do you want to get out of it? 
What's your goal as you seek God's guidance? So often we are focused on our own immediate concerns. We want to know what's going to be good for us in the moment. It's as though we're looking in the mirror and the, the reflection that we see is our own face and there is our guidance goal. It's myself. What will be best for me? What major do I feel most passionate about? What graduate job will put me on the most comfortable career path? What investment will earn me the most money? What will be most comfortable, most enjoyable? What will make me the most happy? We're thinking so often about the person in the mirror, what will be best for me? Is that why you want guidance from God? Let me flip it around and ask you this. Why do you think that God guides? For what purpose and to what goal does God guide us? This question, this question is our first step for MYC to get a clear picture of where God is guiding us to. And this is really important because before you think about guidance, before you think about decision making, you need to see where you are heading. You need to know the destination to which God is guiding you. It's only because Steve knew we were coming to Camp Cottermouth that he saw this road sign that said Cotter Road and we only just made the turn off. <laughs> the destination. You've got to know where you're going. So what is the goal of God's guidance? What is the goal of God's guidance? Let me give it to you in a sentence. The goal of God's guidance is to bring you home to glory in Christ. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. So point two, God's glorious presence. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. That means that God is guiding you to be with him, to live with him in his own glorious presence. Have you ever been in the presence of glory? A bunch from uh, Wagga a couple of years ago that met Lee Kernigan. Whoa, <laughs> country music glory. Have you ever been in the presence of glory? God is guiding you into his own glorious presence. When God guides, this is the path that he leads us on. And that should terrify you. Meeting God is not like meeting Lee Kernigan. The prophet Ezekiel saw a stunning vision of God. Have you ever read this in the book of Ezekiel? He sees a whirlwind. In the middle of the whirlwind, there's flames and there's fire. And he's seeing the throne of God and it's got wheels that go in every direction. There are crazy flying creatures that are around making weird noises. And in the, in the middle on the throne, he sees um, a, a, a figure that is gleaming and it's bright and it's bronze. And he can't even look at it and he totally freaks out. It's completely overwhelming. But... Here's what he calls it. Ezekiel says, This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. This isn't the Lord. It's not the Lord's glory. It's not the likeness of the Lord's glory. It's the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. And Ezekiel can't even. He can't even. He falls face down. Are you sure that you want God's guidance? If this is where he is guiding you, better make sure you know what you're in for. I don't... I don't want to stand in the shoes of Ezekiel. But let's, for a few minutes, spend some time in the shoes of Moses. Because Moses spends some time in God's glorious presence, uh, but Moses kind of gets a little, a, a little bit easier than Ezekiel does. So we'll do that. We're putting down our, our anchor today in 2 Corinthians. 
our reading from a few minutes ago. Um, but 2 Corinthians, that, that section is, a, is itself a reading of Exodus. So without anchoring 2 Corinthians, let's take some soundings in the book of Exodus. And come and stand with me for a few minutes in, in, the, shoes of Mo, in the sandals of Moses. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. So, Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought... I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This encounter uh, that Moses has with God, it's a little less overwhelming than Ezekiel's, isn't it? God's appearance is not direct. It's veiled in an element of creation. God appears as fire. Maybe it's like talking on the phone. I know no one talks on the phone anymore, but maybe it's like talking on the phone. I can be present with you but not directly. I'm, I'm present with you, but through the phone. So too, God is perhaps present with Moses through this burning bush. God isn't the fire. The fire isn't God, but God is still present in a veiled sense so that Moses can deal, but still Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look. God's glorious presence. Uh, You read on in Exodus and God uses Moses to take his people out of slavery in Egypt and he guides them quite literally uh, with his presence as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud and they get to Mount Sinai and God appears to Moses again and again God's presence is veiled by elements of creation. This time he speaks as, as fire or appears as fire and thunder. So come across to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 16. Exodus 19, 16. Remember there at Mount Sinai. Verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And uh, uh, verse 21, there's a warning. The Lord directed Moses 
Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. That's serious. There's some good guidance. God is guiding them, do you see, safely into his own glorious presence. And uh, this is what the law does. God gives the law and the law regulates the people's lives so that they can live in the glorious presence of God. And uh, they, uh, they do an agreement, they do a deal, and God invites a couple of extra people to this ceremony. Come to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, a few extra people get, uh, get to meet God. Here, chapter 24, verse 1. Exodus 24, verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and bow in worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Let's skip down to verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. They see God. It actually says they see God. But all that's narrated for us is the ground under God's feet. That's all we get to see as readers. And these people, they don't freak out. In fact, they have a picnic. Then verse 12, Moses and Joshua are invited further up the mountain to receive the law. And see verse 18. Verse 18, Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We as readers, we lose Moses. We can't follow him into the presence of the Lord. We can't follow him. God is too glorious. Uh, Moses and the the people he is representing, they're invited through Exodus more and more into the glorious presence of the Lord. God is being more and more unveiled to them. Not in a burning bush, but now... Uh, uh, fire and thunder and now they see God we get these detailed descriptions then of the tabernacle because now we turn to how God is going to be present amongst his people so the tabernacle is a tent Uh, God doesn't have a swag but it's a pretty big tent do we have a picture of the tent Uh, and um, uh, this is where God meets with his people so come across to Exodus chapter 33 Exodus chapter 33, from this tent, God speaks with Moses. Exodus 33, verse 7. Verse 7, now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow in worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Isn't this incredible? 
God would speak with Moses. It says face to face. Face to face. We have here a little portrait of the goal of God's guidance. This is the goal of God's guidance. Speaking with God as you would speak with your friend. And so perhaps Moses is filled with a little confidence now. So verse 18. Verse 18, Moses said, Please let me see your glory. And I don't know what Moses thinks he's been seeing up until now. But okay. And uh, God's response, he makes it clear that there are limits to how a human can experience the presence of God. There are limits to it. So chapter 33, verse 19 God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. Didn't he speak face to face? All right. Verse 21, the Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Moses gets to see God or something of God, not his face, though he spoke face to face with God. It seems to be a figure of speech somehow, doesn't it? In fact, come to the end of chapter 34. Verse 34 of chapter 34, because Moses saw God a whole heap and God's glory made the face of Moses shine and he needed to veil his shiny face. Verse 34 of chapter 34, but whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded and the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Moses is um, uh, experiencing the Lord's glorious presence very uh, intimately, isn't he? But still the warning is there that you can't see God and live. God is simply too big and too bright for people to be able to see him properly. Like when you stand on the beach and you look out at the ocean, the ocean is too big for you to be able to see the whole ocean. When you look at the sun, the sun is too bright for you to actually be able to look at the sun. So too God is too big, is too bright for humans to actually see him and live. But the goal of the book of Exodus is that this God may be present not just with Moses, but with his whole people. So chapter 40, chapter 40, verse 34. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 the last few verses of, uh, of Exodus, the, the cloud, the cloud, which is the Lord, um, his presence, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. God goes gloriously present with his people. This is what God is doing. And I'll say it again, this is the goal of God's guidance, his glorious presence with his people. 
When you want God to guide you, here is where he is guiding you to. So do you want to meet God? Do you want to see God's face? Do you want a glimpse of his glory? Then seek his guidance because this is where he is glorying you. Because this is where he is guiding you. All roads lead to God's own glorious presence. Wait, but uh, is it actually reasonable to expect to see God face to face? Moses does or doesn't? It's a bit hard to tell, isn't it? So, point three, God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. And that means that God is guiding you to be with him, to live in his own glorious presence. And we will see God's glory when we come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. We will see God's glory when we come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. God is guiding you to behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So remember that we're anchored today in the book of 2 Corinthians. So come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing. He's writing a lot about glory here. He's talking a lot about Moses meeting God face to face. He's talking about Moses' face being shiny and needing a veil. Um, But what he's using all this to say is that the new covenant is in Christ is better than the old covenant that was given to Moses. Paul is saying that the glory with which Moses' face shone has been set aside and there is a much more glorious deal on the table now. So, you're in 2 Corinthians? Good. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, he's talking about the old covenant here, which didn't bring life, If the ministry that brought death, chiselled in letters on stones, came with glory, which we've just seen it did, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. He's saying that, yeah, Moses had a good deal, um, but that's nothing compared to what we get in Jesus. That's nothing. In Christ, the veil is lifted. That's verse 16. And so verse 18... Verse 18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. When the gospel is preached, the spirit removes the veil covering our faces and allows us to see God's glory. To see God's glory. And it's not like looking at the sun and being blinded. But there is light involved. It's not the kind of light that blinds. It's the kind of light that illuminates like the sun does the day, and it lets us see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you get what Paul is saying here? He's, He's saying that in the gospel, we like Moses, 
can gaze on the face of God's glory in Jesus. In the gospel, we gaze on God's glory in Jesus. Uh, but for now, but for now, uh, we see this only as, as in a reflection, as in a mirror. It's not a direct sight. This is um, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Paul says, but then, he's looking forward to the, the end of meeting Jesus, then we will see face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I am fully known. Uh, what we have in part in the gospel, the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus, in eternity, we will see Jesus face to face. We will know Jesus as he knows us. We will see Jesus as he sees us. What do you think the face of Jesus is going to look like? There's a lot of art in the world. Have we got some... Uh, look, maybe it's like this beautiful fresco face of Jesus. Can you imagine gazing on this face? The frescoes deteriorate a bit, so it went a bit... Uh, this is in a church in Spain. Yeah, it got a bit bad. Uh, and then an amateur painter fixed it up, so maybe God's glory in the face of Jesus looks like this. Do you think? Maybe, do you got a better image back there? Is there a better one? Oh, that would be better. Maybe it's like that. I'm not sure if Jesus will be a white man. But when you seek God's guidance, when you seek God's guidance, do you realise that he is guiding you to a place where you can behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ? An unmasked face. Do you realise that nothing could make you happier? And do you realise that nothing could be more satisfying? And do you realise that nothing could be more comforting? All roads lead to Jesus. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. And we will see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're at point four. Transformed from glory to glory. Transformed from glory to glory. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. We will see God's glory when we come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. And in that face to face encounter, when you see Jesus face to face, this is what theologian Mike Horton says, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be fully changed, sharing in his glory. When you see Jesus face to face, you see God's glory in his face, we will be fully changed, sharing in that glory. So when you ask God to guide you, know that he guides you so that you are being transformed into the image of Christ. That is what God is doing, guiding you so that you are being transformed into the image of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. 3 verse 18. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you know what he's talking about? Does that feel like that's happening right now? No? Oh. Let's pick it apart then and see what's happening here. So we'll start with this phrase, being transformed. God is transforming you now. Right now, God is transforming you. This is what it feels like for God to transform you. When you think of transformation, do you think of Optimus Prime? That's what I think of. Paul is speaking in Greek, so he, his word is metamorphosis. Um, there's a famous 
uh, novel by Franz Kafka called Metamorphosis. Anyone read Metamorphosis? No art students in the room. Um, uh, let me read you the opening paragraph. This is the opening paragraph. You've got no context for this. When Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from troubled dreams, he found himself changed into a monstrous cockroach in his bed. <laughs> he lay on his tough armoured back and raising his head a little managed to see, sectioned off by little crescent-shaped ridges into segments, the expanse of his arched brown belly atop which the coverlet perched, forever on the point of slipping off entirely. His numerous legs, pathetically frail by contrast to the rest of him, waved feebly before his eyes. What's the matter with me, he thought. It was no dream. Poor Gregor. Is our metamorphosis as horrific as this one? Now we see the next phrase, into the same image. Into the same image. We are being changed, not into cockroaches. We are being changed into the image of Jesus. This is a good transformation, right? This is the kind that you want. This is the goal of God's guidance, that you will, that, that you will in glory look just like Jesus. God is guiding you to a glorious perfection. That's the next phrase, from glory to glory. You won't wake up like Gregor one morning, suddenly changed into glory in this life, at least. Uh, you won't find yourself metamorphosed out of nowhere. Other translations have that phrase translated differently. Anyone got a different translation? From glory to glory. Who's got an ESV? What does that say, Liz? No, sorry, I don't. You don't? What have you got? NIV. NIV, good. What does that say? Which verse? Uh, what verse is it? Verse 18. It's in one of the last phrases. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It says, with ever-increasing glory. Oh, good one. With ever-increasing glory. Yeah. Anyone else got, a, got something similar or different? That's all, is it? That's a pretty good one. That gives us the sense, doesn't it, of, of movement from, from glory to glory. It's a bit hard to tell what that means, but with ever-increasing glory, getting more glorious by the minute. We are getting more glorious by the minute. This is what it feels like to get more glorious by the minute. Um, or the, I'll borrow a phrase from um, theologian Sinclair Ferguson. He says that to make us like Christ then, God is making us like Christ now. To make us like Christ then, in, the, in the eternity, he is making us like Christ now. We're talking um, moral transformation. We're talking a, a revolution in your priorities. We're talking a growing, growing devotion to God. We're talking increasing Christian maturity. This is why God guides to grow you. This is why God guides. Can you look back over the last two years and see how God has grown you? And silence. Please don't despair if you perceive in yourself a lack of growth. This is a long-term project, first of all, isn't it? And so growth can be extremely slow. But, and this is extremely important, please listen to this. You don't transform you. You don't transform you. See the next phrase? This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who transforms you. You don't transform you. It can be crushing to feel yourself not growing. It, you can be so burdened by guilt. What am I doing wrong? Why aren't I getting it right? But I am saying, as Paul does, that this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As the gospel is preached, 
Well, I'm not saying you have no agency in your own transformation or you have no responsibility, but what I am saying is don't despair because it's from the Lord who is the Spirit who transforms you. As the gospel is preached, as the Spirit unveils your face so that you can see the glory of the Lord, as though you were looking in a mirror and he transforms you from glory to glory into the image of the one that you see, this is the Spirit who is doing this. Your own image in the mirror is not the goal of your own guidance. You are not the goal of guidance. The image of God's glory, that is the goal of God's guidance. Transformed from glory to glory, ever-increasing glory. But this glory weighs heavily. The weight of glory, point five, the weight of glory. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. As you gaze on the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that vision transforms you into the image of Jesus. But the image of Jesus, it is a dangerous image to copy. Here's another famous image of Jesus. It's from the Eisenheim altarpiece by Matthias Grunewald. He painted it in 1516. And isn't it horrific? Isn't it brutal? It is gory. It is sobering. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to describe intense physical suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. Hang on. Would God really guide me into that kind of suffering? Would a good God really do that? We do everything that we can to avoid pain, don't we? Um, will that conversation be awkward? Avoid. Uh, will that subject stretch me? Avoid. And what are we meant to do with people who, who drain us? Cut them out. We avoid pain at all costs. Uh, we're terrified of pain in the Western world. I wonder if your goal in asking God for guidance is really for him to help you avoid pain. Is that really why you want God to guide you? Does, do you want him to guide you out of pain? You want to know the path of least anxiety, don't you? Because sometimes we default to thinking that God is guiding me to my own flourishing. This is our default thinking. We seek God's guidance so that, so that we benefit in the here and the now. And look, that's fine as far as it goes. God gives good gifts. And we should enjoy his blessings. But if that is your end game, if that's where you want God to guide you, then God is not going to guide you there. God is going to guide you somewhere differently. God's goal for you is not ultimately a comfortable life. God's goal for you is not ultimately a family and three kids and a dog. God's goal for you is not a life free of pain. But because we default to thinking that, that God is guiding me to my own flourishing, I think it can feel very disorienting when we experience pain and we think, is this really where God wants to guide me? When we experience the, the growing pains of going from glory to glory, I think we wonder, is God even guiding me at all? How could God want me to experience pain? If my ministry brings me not fulfilment, but it brings me pain, well, shouldn't I just pack it in? I think, fortunately, the Apostle Paul has a much better grasp on the matter than we do. 
Because as he carries around, what did he say? He carries around the death of Jesus in his body. As he does that, he knows that it's Christ's resurrection that has overcome death. Pick it up again in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Let's keep going. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh, so then death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul knows that God is guiding him into suffering, because that is the path that Jesus trod. But Paul also knows that God is guiding him to glory, because that also is the path that Jesus trod. And so he doesn't pack it in. He keeps on going. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 4. Therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's intense suffering is, what does he call it? Momentary and light. Oh, but the glory to come that is incomparably heavy. Do you know what the heaviest thing in the world that has ever been directly weighed is? The heaviest thing is the revolving service structure of Launchpad 39B at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Got a picture of it, do we? Oh, look at that thing. It is enormous. Isn't it glorious? Uh, if you can tell me how heavy it is in kilograms, you may have a chocolate. Who's going to guess? More than four kilograms. That's uh, good, yeah. <laughs> Currently leading is... Was that, was that accurate? Yeah. yeah. A million kilograms. A million Keep going. Four million. Four million. Hold on, let me check. Oh, no. Two million three hundred. Oh, look, I'm going to give it to you, Nat. I think it's two million, one hundred ninety-eight thousand, one hundred nine kilograms. That's um, many kilograms. That's many kilograms. That is heavy. <laughs> That's what glory is. Glory is heaviness. The glory produced by Paul's light momentary affliction... It weighs incomparably more than the revolving service structure of Launchpad 39B at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It is weighty. It is weighty because it's God's eternal glory. And when God guides you through suffering and afflictions for the sake of Christ, he is, share, he is guiding you to share in that glory. God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. So point six, do everything. For God's glory. Point six. Do everything for God's glory. When God guides you, his goal is his own glory and your presence with him in glory. So let me give you your first guidance principle. Now write this down at the top of your notes. Your first guidance principle. This will help you make good decisions and will help you make sense of the last talk. Your first guidance principle is this. Do everything for God's glory. Do everything for God's glory. A 
I think it's pretty good advice. Paul gives it, in fact. Come back to 1 Corinthians, just a couple of pages back. 1 Corinthians is before 2 Corinthians, if that helps you find it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. One Corinthians ten thirty one. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. God is principle number one. Do everything for God's glory. This is where we are all going home to glory with Jesus. And knowing the destination, it helps you know how to get there. Do everything now for God's glory, because God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. After God has transformed you from glory to glory, and after you have beheld his glory in the face of Christ, and when you dwell with God forever in his glorious presence, what else is going to matter? What else is going to matter? Should I take that job? Well, will it bring God glory? Should I date that person? Would it bring God glory? Should I do that elective? Well, will it bring God glory? Should I buy that car? Will it bring God glory? Do everything for God's glory. Because God is guiding you home to glory in Christ. Friends, we're going to see this week that God's glorious goal in guiding us determines everything about God's guidance. Determines everything about how God guides and where he is guiding us to. God is taking us home to glory in Christ. And that is where he guides us. He won't guide us anywhere else. From the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.